So let me start by asking, when you go out to eat, who picks up a check? Who picks up the check? It's an age-old question, right? And sometimes a, a humorous battle. Have you seen the credit card commercials where people are kind of uh, doing a little bit of a, a fight to pick up the check? I think it's a Capital One uh, commercial. Don't quote me on that. But, uh, but you see someone so excited to purchase the lunch or rent the bicycles or, or buy the ice cream because, what do they say? Because I get, I get cash back. I get double miles or points, and I watch these commercials, and I, I, sometimes I want to I scream at the TV saying, there's no way you're getting enough points for that. And I'm just saying, what do you, that's, that's, that's terrible justification to just be using a credit card for everything. There's no way you're getting enough points. But take the points, the rewards aside for a moment. There's something about a, about a person excited to give and bless another person and pick up the check or pay for something because they see that there's a benefit. There's a benefit of doing so. There's a fruit. There's a value. There's a return on the investment. And we want to have that same mentality. We want to have an excitement to serve and represent the Lord because of the fruit that gets produced, because of the the gifts He's given to us when we use them for his glory, there's something of value that we get to be a part of. As we continue our annual theme of hope for everyday life, this summer we've been focusing on hope for fruitful service. We want to show people Christ. We want fruit to be produced where men, women, and children come to know him and, and serve him. So we've been focusing on the the spiritual gifts and how we can have hope because of how God has gifted us and how we can be fruitful to use our gifts for his glory. The gifts are wonderful because they are given to us by the Holy Spirit. And all Christians get at least one gift the moment they trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the, the coolest part about these gifts is they're not for ourselves. Our gifts are not for ourselves primarily. They're for the building up and the benefit of the body of Christ. They're to be used for others. Thus far, we've talked about the the gift of teaching, the gift of service, and today we're going to focus on the spiritual gift of giving. What we're going to see is there's a much greater return on that investment. Better than double points, double miles, double anything, because it brings glory and honor to the one who gave to us first and gives to us most. So today we're going to be studying a passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 9, 5 through 8. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible under the chair in front of you in the the back section of the New Testament. There on page 144, you will find 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to actually read the whole chapter because the context is very, very valuable and seeing what Paul is doing and how he's interacting in this letter with the, the Corinthian church and talking about other churches. 
But the passage that we're going to especially focus on in the sermon is going to be verses 5 through 8, but I want to read the, the whole chapter because of the, the fantastic context here. So please follow along as I read uh, the entirety of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, um, not to speak of you, will be put to shame um, by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have and abundance for every good deed." As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Isn't that a a fantastic passage where where Paul is pouring out his heart to the Corinthians and encouraging them to get ready to be generous with a bountiful gift to help other churches in need. The context of 2 Corinthians is fascinating because Paul oftentimes is defending himself. This is his fourth letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. We have two of them in the Scripture. But oftentimes he's defending himself because many people believed that because Paul suffered so much, he couldn't be used by God. How can he be an apostle of the Lord when he suffers so much? And he connects the sufferings of Christ to what Christ accomplished and how there's fruit and people are coming to know the, the Lord the suffering servant. And Paul reaffirms his ministry, and he doubles down, even though he is often slandered, he shifts the focus to encourage this church to think about those who are suffering. 
Think about the church in Judea who are, who are suffering. Here's a, a Gentile church because of Jesus that is called to have this, this generous resource and financial gift to help them. And he is not ashamed to encourage them to make good on their commitment. And we see the heart. We see the heart of giving here. So today, let's consider four essential attributes of giving as we think of this spiritual gift as part of our series. Now, my first point is going to talk about the the context here of the spiritual gift of giving. And the last three points will talk about action steps to walk out the gift. So number one, the context here is generosity is presumed for Christians. It is an expectation of all Christians to, to live lives marked with grace and generosity. Now, now the idea is if you are a recipient of grace, if you've received more than you deserve, more than you can possibly imagine, the logical outflowing is then to live a life marked by grace where you're generous to give others more than they deserve. Now, this covers a wide range of things, not just financial things. It's living generously towards others, having a heart of generosity, a a heart of grace. I've received grace. I want to give grace. One of the ways that we see if we've received love and grace of Jesus is if we are willing to show that to others. Look at 1 John 3.16. It says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. He gave. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods, resources, and sees his brother in need and, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So one of the signs of receiving the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, is is generosity. Not just lip service, but wanting to steward your worldly goods in a way that helps others, especially followers of Christ. So we see that Christ functions as the model of generosity. He's the one we look to for love. What is love? He has explained it. What does generosity look like? He has shown it. We know what giving is because God loved the world that he gave, and he gave his very best. He gave his son, and the end of the chapter I read says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He gave that we might receive. And there's nothing more precious he could have given than his son. Not only that, Jesus' life was marked with giving of his, his time and him, himself. We often talk about giving our time, our talents, and our treasures. And we do that because it points to our generous God shown in giving his son. You see, Christ also functions as the agent of generosity. 
He didn't give till it hurts. He gave till he died. He suffered in our place, took the wrath of God. There's nothing more valuable than Jesus, and he laid down his life. And so we need to receive Jesus if we're going to function with hearts of generosity that give to honor the Lord. Now, truly, there are a great number of wealthy philanthropic people all over the world, but to truly give in a way that honors God, we must first humbly receive the gift of salvation in Christ. So before we think about growing in the area of giving, we must make sure that the gospel message is clear that receiving the gift of eternal life is is first and foremost the foundation by which we have a heart where we can have a generosity towards others so that we use our earthly resources to point to the heavenly resources that we have received. So the first point, though, is all who are in Christ are to live generous lives with our time, our talents, and our resources because of what we have received. And we have a gift. One of the reasons we're talking about the gift of giving is it is an imparted gift of the Spirit. One of the controlling passages we've been using is Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And each of us is to exercise them accordingly of prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, someone who has a spiritual gift of giving will display a unique level of liberality. Now, in the Greek, this is a word that really conveys sincerity or genuineness of heart, but it really includes a generosity. So what does a person like this look like? This is the person who wants to go above and beyond, to give you, not just to, to, to pick up the check, but to give themselves to you, their time their knowledge. They don't want to withhold something from you. They want to bless you. They often will initiate giving opportunities. They see needs, and nobody has to tell them to go meet them. They just go and meet them because they have the gift of giving. And oftentimes, people that I've interacted who have this gift, they often ask if they're going to bless someone or they're going to give towards something, they say, is that really enough to meet the need? I I think we need a little bit more. No one is twisting their arm. They just have this desire to, to make sure there is enough resources to cover whatever the need is. And you just say, this person is gifted. It comes naturally to them. They're not, they're just wanting just to, to be generous. And when you interact with someone that has that giftedness, the right response is, this is wonderful. Not everybody has this gift, and we want to celebrate it and just give thanks when somebody just initiates opportunities to bless others and wants to make sure somebody has what they need. The gift of giving is a really good thing that impacts the whole church body, even if not everybody is naturally inclined to this mentality. It impacts everybody around them. 
Oftentimes, when someone gives generously, it intrinsically benefits the whole, the whole body. But oftentimes, there's more benefit than just to the one receiving. Often, others hear about it. They may not know who was generous, but they know a need was met, and somebody was generous. And it often impacts them and impacts their life as well. Paul Paul says that in the context of this chapter where he says, I've talked about your bountiful gift and you, and that is stirred up others. They already have their gift altogether, and you're having an impact on other, other churches because you have a burden for those who are in need in Judea. The spiritual gift of giving can impact whole churches, whole families. Consider Consider a family in need that gets blessed by their church body and think about one of the kids in that family who sees the body of Christ blessing their family. That can impact them for the rest of their life. That this is what the body of Christ is like. This is what Christ is like. He meets people's needs. He meets their their greatest need. Even if we don't know who the giver is, knowing a need is met inspires others to be generous in their own lives. And later, the person who received the gift may be in a position to have that opportunity to bless someone else. And so it, it blesses the whole body, and it points back to the extreme generosity of Christ. So it's good for the body. But the text has a warning. The warning is that the heart of giving is spoiled through covetousness. I practiced saying that word like 12 times, <laughs> as well as philanthropic. But um, covetousness, look at it in the text. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. They had already committed to helping the church in Judea, and he's encouraging them to prepare, and he's sending envoys to make sure everything is all set up, and he knows this may not come to fruition. Something could stop it, and that thing is covetousness. So what is coveting? Well, we know in Exodus 20, it's on the list of Ten Commandments. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. We know Paul uses it um, in Romans 7 to talk about how the law reveals our covetous hearts. We know in James 4 that that's why we have conflicts. We want things and we, we see things we can't get. So coveting is a sinful desire for someone else's possessions, and you want them for yourself. So you're discontent with your life or what you have, and you get jealous or covetousness, and you want someone else's things. Maybe you're, you're fed up with your car, and you would finally be happy if you could get that brand new Honda Civic that you torturously drive by every day. You know, the, the Honda Civic, the beige one with the 10-inch tires, the really good one with great gas mileage, that, that, that one that just really tempts you. 
Okay, maybe it's not a maybe it's not a Honda Civic. But maybe you look at what someone else has, their looks, their talent, what you think their family looks like, and you have eyes to take. And what Paul is saying is if there's this heart where you want to give, but you allow a heart of wanting to take and wanting other people's things, how are you going to give what you have if you want to take what someone else has? The, the heart flow is not going to go from I want your stuff and now I'm going to be really generous with my stuff or the stuff that God has entrusted to me. And so he's wanting to make sure this bountiful gift is ready and not affected by covetousness because that can change the whole framework. So we always want to guard, guard our hearts to be content and not covetous so that we can grow in giving. We want to walk in generosity because we're content. And all of this means we must embrace the logic of giving. Look at how it says, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, I asked a farmer friend of mine to walk me through um, how this works nowadays and how it worked back then so that I wouldn't mess this up with some terrible farming analogies. So he walked me through this, so I, I, I think I have how it works, but Nowadays, you, you, you plant and you harvest and you sell all of your grain and you get those resources. But back in the day, you would harvest your grain, let's just say your corn, and you would sell some of it, you would store some of it, and you would eat some of it. And you would eat some of it more, and you would go from your storehouses, and that would be your supply of food. But what you stored would also be your seed supply. For planting. Now, nowadays, it's like really maintained where you can't hold back some of your seed in your, in your barn and then go plant yourself. That's like a big no-no. But back then, you were in charge. You were in charge of holding back some of your seed and planting so that you would get another harvest next year. So if you take a kernel of corn and you plant it, it would produce multiple ears of corn which is just a, a great, i got to save some of my ear, uh, corn, kernels of corn, plant it, and get a bunch of ears of corn. What's tempting is to eat all the corn. I mean, just think about it. Cornbread, cream corn, corn on the cob. Some call it Texas caviar. Corn chowder, corn dip, corn chips. I mean, you could, you could just eat it all up, and it's a lot easier. i got corn right here. Let's make something. No, 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 i got to save some of it, put it in the ground, and the harvest is going to come later. But it's easier just to consume it all right now. we got plenty. A person who uses their seed wisely, plants it, will have an abundant harvest later. But if they only think in the short term and only look at the resources for themselves and for right now, It has consequences later. That's the logic here in the text of sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly. So the overall point here is we're not just talking about corn, and we're not simply talking about worldly resources. We're talking about a harvest of righteousness. 
We're talking about something of greater value than just seed and bushels and dollars. So the overall point is to view your resources as a means, not an end. Invest what you have for God's kingdom by being generous rather than consuming everything yourself. I just think it's important to make sure it's super clear that what we're not advocating for is a health and wealth and prosperity gospel. So many messages you see on TV are if you give a certain amount or if you give and help a TV preacher buy an airplane, if you give, then God's going to exponentially bless you and pour out financial resources on you and you'll be healthy and wealthy and everything will be great in your life. And that's just not the message of the gospel. That's not the message that Paul, the one who was um, looked down upon because of how much he suffered, talking about the sufferings of Christ, that is not the message that he was conveying to the Corinthian church. But he was calling them to use their resources as a tool rather than the end, rather than the destination. And that guards you from viewing money as your God and your refuge. And it requires you to trust God with all you have. Paul was calling people to trust Jesus for the gospel and to trust him with the way they live their lives, including everything, including their finances. All of this requires trust because you do not know how or when the return will come. The harvest of righteousness, what exactly does that look like and how are we a part of it? Here's a bunch of verses about giving, and I really want to read them, and I want you to take away from every verse, this requires trust in God. There's uncertainty built in. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Look at Proverbs 11.24. There's one who scatters yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results in want. Withholding, keeping results in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. I just love that. He who waters will be watered. But we don't know when or in what way. We trust that he will be watered. Verse 22.9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. In what way might you be blessed? We don't know. It may not be a direct financial correlation. In fact, it probably won't be. It may be blessed with righteousness and the greater eternal value of the Lord seeing and the Lord rewarding in the way that he deems best. Galatians 6, 7 is fascinating, talking about sowing. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So the sowing principle goes way beyond, way beyond what we're talking about financially. It really talks about what do you invest your whole life in? What do you give your life towards? And this idea is that it requires a trust in God and when we don't want to trust God, when we say, God, I don't really think you can do what you say you're going to do. I don't think you're that important. We're, in essence, mocking God and saying, you're not who you say you are. And ultimately, that will be reaped. And the reality, though, is sometimes 
pursuing just living generously, just giving of your time when you're exhausted, giving of your resources when you don't have that much margin, just, just having a heart of generosity towards those who don't deserve generosity, it can exhaust you. You can lose heart really quickly. And Galatians 6, 9 warns, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. In due time. When is that? We don't know. But the Lord does. And he calls us to be faithful in putting on a generous heart of giving, treating people around us better than they deserve. One commentator, David Garland, summarized it like this. Reluctance to sow generously then reflects a refusal to trust that God is all-sufficient and all-gracious. It also assumes we can only give when we are prospering and have something extra that we will not need for ourselves. Paul says that at all times, God provides us with all that we need, so there's never any time when we cannot be generous. The third attribute of giving is strive for proper giving motivations. We want to act upon conviction. Notice the text in verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purpose in his heart. So if this is an overflow of your walk with the Lord and the spirits that work in your life, there's going to be conviction when a need is presented. But what Paul is talking about is thinking ahead, not just when a a need is presented, but standing with a conviction early. Just this mentality, Christ has been generous with me, I want to be generous with others. Christ has been generous with me, I want to be generous with others. Some might be very gifted in this. They're predisposed. It comes naturally. Others may have to really work at it in their mind to remind themselves, Christ was generous to me. I don't feel like giving this person my attention right now. I don't feel like helping this person. They've gotten themselves in this mess. I really need to remind myself what Christ has done for me and seek to have a heart of giving. Some, they don't even have to think that much about it. How can I help? What can I do? And all of us want to seek to honor God in this area, whether it comes really natural to you, you're gifted, or you really have to work at it. But it's not something that you are to be forced or guilted to do. It's something that you purpose in your heart for the glory of God. You know, Pastor Viers regularly leads us as a staff to never take for granted the generosity of this body of believers. In short of faith, after in short of faith, I hear him talk about how we rarely talk about money, usually once a year around stewardship month or whenever you're planning to invite your neighbor. That's just how it just, you're inviting someone and this is the day. So if you invited your neighbor and you've been inviting them to church and they came, the Lord is sovereign. He has an amazing plan. We don't skip things in Scripture, and this was on the docket to be preached on, and so we're not going to shirk away from it because we believe Christ can be honored in all aspects of the counsel of God. But we don't have to talk about it a lot. 
because so many people in this church have already stood in their heart that they are going to be faithful, sacrificial, and generous in their normal giving, their tithes, in their offerings to support the extra ministries God has given to us. And even in a capital campaign year, I mean, when you just think about it, so many are not flashy, but they're faithful. And Pastor Viers leads us ever since I came on staff as a, as, a, as a young pastor. Every family had to work hard to earn that money. And they had to trust God by faith to give it. And we want to be good stewards of that and never, ever take that for granted. And so I've been on staff here for 13 years And I've been well-trained to never take the generosity of our church family for granted. And it's just a reminder of how generous our God is, how, how freely Christ gave us his life. And we have example after example after example in our church family that is good to not take for granted and to celebrate. That's our story, and that's what I want to glorify God with. But the text still gives a warning because people still have to wrestle with this in their heart and purpose where they are individually. So we want to encourage folks who, if they're not in the right place, to repent of improper giving motivations. Look at verse 7. This is not to be done grudgingly or under compulsion. Become Someone makes you do it or you do it, but you really don't want to do it. It's kind of like if your dad asks you to mow, your mom asks you for help, preparing people coming over, or a neighbor needs some help with a project. And you do it out of guilt, and you grumble, and you complain, instead of seeing it as an opportunity to show how good your God is, and you want to give of your time and your energy and your resources to to help someone else. So we want to look at our hearts, where our treasure lies, and the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So oftentimes we see that our, not just our words, our body language, our facial expressions, it really shows if we are on board with this opportunity. And the reality is we want to be a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. It's kind of like if you do something good and you boast about it, that's your reward. You get the boasting of someone else hearing how good you are. If we give begrudgingly, there's not really an investment because the attitude in which we give can corrupt the gift. Notice this commentator said, In the Old Testament, giving reluctantly or under compulsion is portrayed as canceling out any benefit that could be received from the gift while giving with a glad heart promises reward from God. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to, as Deuteronomy 15 references. It also goes on to say, Scripture assumes that what is crucial is the attitude is the one who gives, not the amount not the amount. God who knows and appraises our hearts values only those gifts that come as a free expression of the deepest part of our souls. It's not the amount. It's the attitude. It's the heart behind it. So guard your heart. Be generous, but guard your heart. When you think about giving, 
Think about what the overall purpose is. We want God to be glorified. Lastly, look at the source and example of giving. We saw earlier that Christ is the model and the agent of our generosity. We know what giving is because of His gift of Himself. And we're able to give generously because the Spirit is working in us. And look at this final passage, verse 8. Look at God's promise here. Look at what God declares. God is able to make all grace abundant to you. Just think of the extreme words here. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God's going to give us what we need to be able to bless others. God's going to meet our needs as we think of other people. And it all goes back to the key word here, the abundance of grace. He wants his grace to flow through us towards other people, and that requires a heart of generosity, a heart of giving. If we don't think much about God's grace, we won't want to give much of our time, our talents, and our resources to others. So whether you have the gift of giving or not, be sure you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and think about His grace towards you and think about being a conduit of grace, whether it's easy for you or it's something you really have to aim your mind at. See, the last thing I want to point out is we think about the source and the example of giving being Jesus. We also want to be Christ-like, followers of Christ who point to Christ, and so we want to be the example as well. We want to draw from the source of all giving through His abundant grace, but then we want to model the ultimate example of giving. This is what Corinth was to other churches, and other churches were their testimony helping the Corinthians complete their commitment So all of this requires action, that we might have an abundance for every good deed. The idea here is we're doing things that are good for others that bring glory to our God. And the value, it's not double miles. It's not double points. It's not you get 5% off a hotel that you'd never stayed anyways. What's the value? What's the investment? We get to be a part of the harvest there's going to be a harvest of righteousness that we get to be a part of that has a value that cannot be calculated. Let me end with this passage. When Jesus talks about sowing the seed of the gospel within the heart of a Samaritan woman and the impact it had on her whole community and how the disciples have to have eyes to see the harvest. John 3.35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
We are going to treasure the people who came to know Jesus. And we want to use our earthly resources to that end and for His glory. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, I know this topic can at times be challenging. And yet, Lord, we want to make sure that the focus is on Christ. We want your word to point back to the glories of Christ and what he has given and his grace and generosity that changes us. And so, Lord, I do pray that all Christians will be marked by by generosity, by a giving spirit, and by grace to treat others way better than they deserve because we have been treated way better than what we deserve. Lord, guard our hearts from covetousness that can corrupt generosity. Lord, help us to be content with what you have given us and help us get great joy and invest in what we have in your kingdom for the eternal benefit of men, women, and children coming to know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to purpose in our hearts to be cheerful in our giving because we want to be a part of what you are doing. Lord, help it not be a guilt trip or not under compulsion, but because we love you. And Lord, I pray that we will indeed have an eternal view and an eternal investment of our resources for your glory and you will supply our needs so that we will be well-equipped for every good deed that you lay out for us and for your glory. Lord, thank you for the generosity of the believers, our church family. And Lord, help us excel all the more, all to the praise and glory of your name. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.